Blog Talk Radio. challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. And I'll say that one more time. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. Yeah, I played the instrumental version this morning to the show because the topic that we are going to talk about today is a topic that definitely needs to be handled with care, something that definitely needs to be heard by many, by all actually, because it affects all of us in our everyday lives. But before we get into all of that, I wanted to make some announcements about what's happening in the black free thought, atheist, humanist community. And next weekend, everybody, we are really, truly excited about this. People of Color Beyond Faith will be holding their first virtual conference, and it should be a really good time. We've sent out the invites online to a number of people. You can find it on the Black Free Week Black Free Thinkers Wall, as well as on our Tumblr and Twitter accounts, and this is going to be under People of Color Beyond Faith. We ask that you all go out and you, um, you know, subscribe to the page, subscribe to the YouTube account. But next Saturday and Sunday, February fifteenth and sixteenth, we will have some panels on Saturday evening or Saturday day, actually, we'll have black folks do do atheism. Then our second panel will be using social media for social justice activism. The third panel will be sex, sexuality, and gender politics. The fourth panel will be black diasporic perspective. 
And on Sunday, to just be one panel for about an hour and a half, Radical Humanist Traditions and Communities of Color. And we have a variety of people that will be on those panels, a little bit of something for everybody. So we encourage you to come out and enjoy yourselves. We take questions and answers on Twitter as well as on the on the YouTube channel and the Google chat. So, again, the hashtag for our Twitter is POC Beyond Chat. Again, POC Beyond Chat. And you can also join us weekly every Thursday at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. We do a Twitter chat, and we just talk about a variety of different issues and use the same hashtag. We look forward to speaking with you, and we have a good time every week. So we just thank you guys for, you know, your support and your motivation. And people of color beyond faith, we try to bring you a webcast every month. But this month we wanted to do something special, so we're bringing you five panels over two days. And this is just for you all to enjoy. This is us giving back to the community, letting you know how much we care about you, how much we love you. We understand that there are some people that can't come to these conferences, but we want you to see, you know, what the panels were like, how involved they were, and just give something back to you because we understand, you know, some of these conferences are expensive. Some are just totally out of the way. Other people, there are some people who are not out as nonbelievers or as you know, humanists or free thinkers, and we understand that, and we don't want to marginalize you any more than you've already been marginalized. So this is our way of giving back to you. But we also have a physical conference coming up October 11th and 12th, and that will be held in Los Angeles, California. So that will be held at CFI Los Angeles, and again, that's October 11th and 12th of 2014. We've been announcing this since October of last year. We wanted to give you a year to kind of put together your money for your United Negro Conference Fund, we want to see you. So, you know, bring your books, bring your cameras, you know, we'll be signing autographs, taking pictures, all of that. It's a few surprises that we're going to have, and we're just looking forward to seeing you there because we want to see you, we want to meet you, we want to thank you in person. So, you know, we wanted to tell you about that. And also, the Day of Solidarity for Black Nonbelievers, which is a yearly event, and it always takes place the very last Sunday in February, every year. So this year is Sunday, February the 23rd, two weeks from today. And we plan to have events all over the country. I've posted some information about the event that's happening in Chicago. I'll repost it. I know there are events taking place in Los Angeles. They're having an open house. Donald Wright, the founder of the Day of Solidarity for Black Nonbelievers, they're having an event in Houston for the Houston Black Nonbelievers, and Chocolate City Skeptics, which is a new group that's happening in D.C., they're having an event up there, and I mean, I know there are events happening all across the country, so please stay posted, please contact people in your area. It doesn't have to be a large event. If, you know, if you're over in, you know, Alcorn, Alabama, I don't even know if there is an Alcorn, Alabama, but I'm just making it up today. If there are only two of you out there, that's fine. Go out, have some coffee, send us pictures, send us your your testimonies, send us something. Let us know that you're doing okay and that you found each other, but you have a community online and there are communities offline. So we just want to encourage you all 
to participate and to get to know people, not only in the communities of color, but also the communities that are not of color as well, because we do work together, you know, on a lot of projects. And, you know, we do have some allies out there. But, you know, the um, day is called the Day of Solidarity for Black Nonbelievers, and this is for everyone. Because last year at our event in Chicago, we had, you know, white people show up, we had Latino people show up, we had some, you know, people from the islands, you know, everybody. This is open to everybody. So, again, we don't discriminate. This is open to everybody, and we appreciate each and every last one of you. And I think I got all of my announcements. Oh, Morgan State. One more thing. People of color beyond faith, we're sending representatives to Morgan State University. This will be April 25th and 26th, and this is their Philosophical Atheism in Communities of Color Conference. And so Dr. Joshua Miller invited us out. So Dr. Hutchinson, Raina Rose, and myself will be there. All three of us actually are giving presentations now, and we'll have a panel that Friday night, and that Friday night we would just be talking about bridging the divide between the secular community and the communities of faith and how we can work together on social justice, grassroots activism, community activism, all of that, and finding what we have in common and working together for the greater good of all because, you know, we're going to have to do something, and, you know, these are some of the first steps that need to be taken. So come on out to Morgan State in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, April 25th and 26th, that's that Friday and Saturday, Friday night panels, Saturday presentations. Come on out. We would love to hear from you. And that was a mouthful, 10 minutes worth of, you know, um, announcements. So, guys, we have a lot coming up. I haven't even told you even the tip of it, really. You know, a couple of big announcements coming out, hopefully, Hopefully um, by the end of this month or by the middle of next month, but one is really going to knock your socks off, and I just want to tell it now, but I can't. But anyway, you all stay tuned. Stay tuned. There's a lot happening. So with that being said, we're going to move forward, and today our show is we're going to be conversing with Christopher Everett, and he directed a documentary called Wilmington on Fire, and for those of you who have been following this show, I did a show on um, basically privileged mutiny, and on the first show, I talked about domestic terrorism, and we talked about what happened in Orangeburg, we talked about what happened in Tulsa and Rosewood, I talked about what happened over in Wilmington, North Carolina, and during that time when I was posting the links, this young man contacted me by the name of Christopher Everett, and he informed me that he was doing a documentary on that particular subject. And I said, we have to have him on the show so we can talk about it because this is the only coup d'etat that has ever happened on U.S. soil. And this particular story was covered up. I mean, it really wasn't until the 90s in which the government even recognized that this happened. And he'll talk about that a little bit more, but let me tell you something about the director. Christopher Everett, he's an actor, he's a writer, he's a director and a producer. Um, he has a degree in graphic design from King's College in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he recently finished his first documentary, um, which is titled The Lorenberg Institute Established 1904, and it's about a historical African-American boarding and day school in his hometown of Lorenberg, North Carolina. He starred in many commercials throughout the Southeast and in indie films such as the winning um, narrative short, 
on my last breath. So, you know, if you go out to the profile that we have there, I gave you all the teaser trailer and the preview trailer for Wilmington on Fire, and, you know, they're looking forward to releasing that this year. So we'll talk more about it. So without much further ado, Christopher, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well today. It's a you know beautiful day here in North Carolina, so you know it's it's great. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. yeah, right up I-75. I know all about. No, that's I-85 going to North Carolina. I'm taking you to Alabama. But uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So I know I know all about that, but. You know, welcome to the show, and congratulations, and I am really looking forward to seeing this film because, you know, this is a story that absolutely needs to be told, and a lot of people aren't aware of what happened happened in Wilmington. And just to kind of get the show started and to put all of this in context, do you mind telling us a little bit about what happened? Well, you know, the Wilmington Massacre it was a pretty much – a bloody attack on the African-American community, um, pretty much by a heavily armed white mob <clears throat> during the year of November 10, 1898, with the backing of the North Carolina Democratic Party. And we all know, you know, back then the Democrats were pretty much your, your hard, you know, conservative party back then, and Republicans was pretty much your liberal party. So this was just a whole movement by the Democratic Party throughout North Carolina during this time, and it just wasn't something restricted to Wilmington. They kind of just chose Wilmington to just do the massacre, but this was actually a statewide movement, you know, all across the state of North Carolina. <clears throat> so it pretty much was a statewide coup d'etat that happened in 1898. But it was just a, a, mass, a mass murder of hundreds of African Americans and a mass exodus of a lot of African-Americans who left the city of Wilmington, in which they were the majority population, but after the 1898 massacre, that, that population was reversed into a white majority. And it's been that way ever since. So, so pretty much the Wilmington massacre was the event that led to the whole Jim Crow segregation era in North Carolina and a lot of places throughout the American South. Exactly, exactly. And I think they called it also a day of blood. You know, where did that yeah. come from? Uh, it, that's, it's pretty much self-explanatory, uh, November 10th. Um, it pretty much was like two weeks of just an onslaught of people just going around killing African-Americans at will. And there was always a saying, like we have in the teaser trailer, you know, they say that the Cape Fear River was full of bloody black bodies you know, on November 10th, 1898. And that's always been a saying that they pretty much dump all the, the dead black bodies in the Cape Fear River. Um, the Cape Fear River is pretty much right there in the downtown Wilmington area. And also there was also just sayings of how they, when they killed black people, they pretty much left a lot of the bodies out in the streets for weeks. Their buzzers just circled the city. So it was a very, very bloody event, very bloody and violent event. Exactly, and exactly, and, you know, a lot of the, you know, free blacks, you know, that were living in that area, you know, they dispersed all over the country. Some of them made it all the way up to Canada, you know, yeah. to fear, and 
it's just that, you know, this story definitely needs to be told because this happened, you know, on more than one occasion. And the reason why, you know, I talk about these stories is because even in today's society, you know, we hear some people, some of the rhetoric that's out there that Mm -hmm. says, well, why can't blacks or why don't blacks do like some of the other model minorities and pull themselves Mm -hmm. up by their bootstraps and become economically viable and, you know, all of these things. And we're showing you that on many occasions that is what we've done and it was destroyed. You know, and that's that's, that's the thing that happened. I Mm -hmm. I agree. And that's the thing that happened. Um, You hear a lot of that always going on, like, you know, why can't black people pull themselves up by their bootstraps? But we've always, and those are some of the topics we discuss in the film. Um, educationally, you know, blacks have always achieved educational-wise, um, starting business districts like in Wilmington, Rosewood, Tulsa, all throughout America. But certain impediments would always happen that would mess that up, such as different massacres and all of that stuff that would happen. So we've always strived to be the best and strive for economic independence. But what makes our people different is that something always comes in the way to destroy that. Exactly, exactly. And the common theme that when I did the show um, about domestic terrorism and the same theme runs, you know, um, with what happened in Wilmington is, you know, blacks were prosperous. They had their own businesses. They were leaders in government. Uh, you know, they were independent. And, you know, the jobs that were available, the public jobs that were available through the government as well as private, you know, um, entities, that, you know, they were excelling and being hired. And what happened is it caused a shortage of employment for a lot of the whites in areas. And, you know, there was some jealousy. And that's what was the impetus in some cases for some of these riots and some of these mobs. And even though there were times they tried to say that white girls and women were being raped, that's the excuse that they were used in, you know, a number of different, you know, riots. And But also part of it was, you know, the fight for jobs, the fight for prosperity, you know, when yeah. – some of the blacks were doing better economically, you know, educationally, you know, in many other areas than the whites. There were some whites that became jealous, and they decided to burn down the businesses, to kill the people, to run them out of town. And so when I hear people, you know, espousing that rhetoric of, you know, why can't you pull yourselves up by the bootstraps, it's not to say that we can't do it again. We can do it again, but how do we Mm -hmm. protect it? Exactly. Exactly, and see that's what makes and that's what makes the whole Wilmington <clears throat> event. Um, you is pretty much used as a model because just like you were saying with the whole white woman phenomenon, where they would use you know a black person, a black man raping a white woman or did something to a white woman, that pretty much started with the whole Wilmington thing, and a lot of the massacres that followed the Wilmington massacre, like Tulsa and Rosewood and all that, used that same model and that same platform through the white media outlets. You know, newspapers back then was real big. That was pretty much your main media outlets back then. But a lot of people don't want to admit this. The majority of people, especially the majority of white people, really were illiterate back then. And a lot of times these newspapers knew that and they took advantage of that. 
when they would do these political cartoons of showing, you know, black people as savages and they're taking advantage of the government. Pretty much a lot of the stuff that you hear today in the media about exactly. black people using the system, they've always been saying that stuff ever since 1865, you know, in a lot of the media exactly. outlets. You compare a lot of this stuff from back then, and you see today it's like the same type of message. And they kept, you know, fueling that fire and fueling that fire. And so the average white person who's poor or whatever like that, they pretty much get in their mind that it's black people that are holding them back, which is not the case at all. Exactly, and you're correct. They're using the same type of rhetoric today, and that's why, you know, we point this out to people, you know, when we talk about these shows. And, you know, it's like, you know, history you know, is repeating itself. It's not even necessarily mm-hmm. repeating itself. It's just recycling. You know, recycling the same stories, recycling the same, you know, scenarios over and over. And what they do is, is a lot of fear-mongering because, I mean, that's even yeah. happening. To Look at what, you know, is happening with President Barack Obama and how they're yeah. treating him. You know, I tell people all the time, look at the Tea Partiers. That's like the mm-hmm. modern-day lynch mobs that we're talking about mm-hmm. out here, you know, mm-hmm. that are claiming that, you know, it's the blacks in immigrants, now they've added immigrants. I mean, it's always been a problem with immigrants in this country. And when we talk about what happened with, you know, a lot of blacks, and I had to point this out last week to someone, um, you know, there are some people that are under the misguided conception that all racism was just directed at blacks. No, it was racism directed at Chinese people. It was racism directed at Japanese people, Filipino people, um, Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, you know, you name it. If you were not a wasp, it was directed at you. It was directed at Italians. It was directed at Irish people. And this is one of the reasons why when you have different immigrants, you know, coming to this country, why they do not want to be identified as black. Because back way back when, <laughs> you know, when they were basically, you know, lynching Italians and Irish people, they were calling them derogatory names like Guinness. And yeah. that's the equivalent to nigger. And so mm-hmm. once we started recognizing, you know, Italians and Irish people as honorary whites, that's when even more of the resentment started coming in. And so we just want to kind of let you all know some of the resentment, some of, you know, where some of this stems from. And it's just it's important, you know, that they know that type of information and that that's put out there. But, you know, going back to, you know, Wilmington, you know, they just walked in and basically with the consent of the Democratic Party at that time, they kicked all of the black people out of office. You want to talk a little bit about that, the blacks that were elected to office, and they just yeah. went in and just totally kicked them out and took over. Yeah, see, the whole thing of it pretty much goes pretty much after what happened after the Civil War. And what happened after the Civil War, you know, you had the Democrats still pretty much in control in North Carolina. But then you had a new coalition that began to form with the Populist Party and Republican Party. And they called this whole thing fusion politics. You know, fusion politics is nothing more than just kind of like two political parties coming together, joining forces. Right. And what they, a lot of Republicans and a lot of black Republicans decided to join with the populist movement and to create this thing called fusion politics in North Carolina, pretty much to put their people in office. And black people saw it as a way to advance, you know, themselves as well in the political arena, educational-wise and business-wise. So they kind of joined 
this whole fusion movement with a lot of the white Republicans and also the white populace. So over time, they began to control the whole state of North Carolina through the legislative branch, and then they eventually got the governorship with um, Governor Daniel Russell, who became, who became governor, I think, in 1896. But see, the whole thing, the Democrats, this really kind of pissed them off because they wanted to get back in power. And it was hard for them to do that when you had this fusionist coalition. You know, they pretty much were out of power, i say, probably about 1896. But the thing that made Wilmington so important Wilmington was North Carolina's major city back in those days. It wasn't Charlotte. It wasn't Raleigh. You know, your main city was Wilmington. And just like how today, like, you have the Hispanic um, population, uh, they kind of just took over certain cities. They pretty much kind of, you know, went to certain cities, eventually became the majority population. That's what happened mm-hmm. in Wilmington. Over time, over, like, a good 20-year period, African Americans just became, you know, just started coming there because of good jobs. It was a port city, a lot of major port activity, the import and export of trades and goods in the city, and it was really thriving. And a lot of people were putting out ads telling black people, "Come to Wilmington, there are good jobs here, opportunity to buy homes, opportunity to start mm-hmm. business." So people came from everywhere: South Carolina, Virginia, Georgia came from everywhere to come to Wilmington to, 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 to make a life for themselves. And over time, by 1897, black people became the majority. And that pretty much, you know, put people on, on high alert. Because if black people became the majority of that city, then pretty much whoever controlled Wilmington pretty much would control the state of North Carolina because it was exactly. your major city back then. And, you know, a lot of white folks went on high alert, even the white liberals in the Republican Party. You know, like, hold mm-hmm. on now. If these black people say, okay, we're the majority population, and they can vote, you know, just their own people in and really take control of the government, we can't have that. So they kind of kept them at bay somewhat, you know, the right. Republican Party, the Liberal Party. But they didn't want black people to get that much control. But, you know, they allowed them to be, you know, aldermen, certain city officials. The mayor still was white. He was a Republican. You know, so it's like, you had advancements for black people, but you had the liberal side of that party that still kind of kept it to a minimum. You know what I'm saying? Where the Democratic exactly. Party just didn't want black people to be controlled, period. But the liberal side still didn't. They wanted black people to have some type of say-so, but not all the say-so. And there's also, you know, different articles about that where a lot of black right. folks really got kind of tired of that coming from the liberal party, from the fusionist party as well. And there was always been rumors that black people were just going to break away from the fusionist movement and just start their own thing since they were the majority population in that city. But that never happened because you had the 1898 massacre happen. But you had black people that had, you know, a lot of federal jobs, like the the collector of customs for Wilmington was a black man by the name of John C. Dancy. You had exactly. um, black people being, like, you know, deputy sheriff or head over the post office. You had all of it. Know, people on the border, aldermen, magistrates. Um, one of the guys we have in my film, his great-great-grandfather was a black police officer, and he showed me some of these old pictures, and he loves to use the pictures in the film, of his great-great-grandfather, who was like one of the, you know, guys on the, on the police department. And a lot of the police officers that fired him back then were black. But all those guys got removed after the massacre. They replaced all of them, you know, with white people. Right. 
Exactly, exactly. You know, because Wilmington became like a mecca for black mm-hmm. people, and, and they were also calling it a city of lost opportunities for whites. Yes. And that's where yes. some of the resentment, you know, came in. And from, you know, what I was reading, that, you know, they were just fanning the flames there, you know, the newspapers. And you were, you're right about how a lot of the whites were illiterate in the cartoons and all of that. And, you know, you even can contrast that to today, whereas, yeah. you know, we have this, you know, air, but basically – intellectualism is kind of frowned upon today. You know, when yes. President Obama was saying that he wanted everyone to have the opportunity to go to college, you know, what did they call mm-hmm. him, a snob? They called mm-hmm. him an intellectual snob because he wanted people yes. to go to college. But anyway, going back, you know, talk about this. And basically what they were saying was that, you know, a so-called Negro henchman for, you know, Governor Russell was that this black man will wash his hands in the red blood of some white person before nightfall. And, you know, with that particular threat, that's what allegedly, you know, got them, you know, so angry. And then also there were pictures of the, you know, U.S. commissioner and his Negro mistress together, which, you know, angered them as well. So, you know, just going back and you start looking at some of this history, that's why I tell people to go out and to read and to do the research on your own so that you can see what's happening and how all of this came about because, you know, it's just it's unbelievable, unbelievable. But a lot of this, you know, was it came from jealousy. It came from jealousy, you know, jealous of the strides that had been made by, you know, by blacks. And, you know, a lot of this was done as a signal to other blacks that you better not try this. Yeah. And see, this is the whole thing, what what makes the, and we talk about this in the film, what makes the Wilmington massacre, you know, an interesting topic because, you know, these white folks, they were organized. They were organizing as hell how they did this. And they you and they took pretty about yeah, two or three years to set this all up. Um, mainly by one of the Democratic Party leaders of North Carolina, Fernfold Simmons. Him and they created certain things called the White Government Union and you had the red shirts. The red shirts pretty much, much was like the Ku Klux Klan. They did all the dirty work, you know, going going around threatening people threatening people, burning down people businesses and stuff like that. If you come in to vote, they'll be there with the shotguns waiting on you. And but what made them kind of interesting, they didn't wear no masks. You know, they were just all right. out and open with theirs. And you had them, you had the white government union. And the guy, one of the guys in our film, Kent Chap, really breaks that whole white government union stuff down through a lot of his research over the years. But the white government union, that was also a branch of the Democratic Party in North Carolina. It was more of your, it was similar to the Klan, but it was kind of more secret and more organized pretty much like a right. lot of your business leaders, your lawyers, and a lot of your legislative people were a part of that, you know, pretty much making out a lot of the, the plans and tactics and strategies. And we also we have their constitution and bylaws and everything. And in the constitution and bylaws, it said what they were going to do. They were going to use the media, you know, and use the vote and, you know, use those scare tactics and violence to pretty much drive out the Negro um, presence in Wilmington and throughout North Carolina, you know, and this is right in their constitution and bylaws. Right, exactly. You know, kind of like that little manifest destiny that many of them believed in. I think you're referring to the Secret Nine. Is that who you're talking about? The group of citizens uh, that 
Yeah, see, the thing is, is that another thing that makes the Wilmington situation kind of kind of um, weird that so you had a lot of writing, a lot of stuff that you find on the internet, a lot of that stuff really isn't true. And see, that's how mm-hmm. that stuff was covered up a lot of years. Um, you had like a, a guy named Harry Hayden. He wrote a, a piece about the Wilmington Rebellion. And a lot of these cats, man, they kind of use other people as scapegoats, you know, created mm-hmm. stuff like Secret Nine and all that, and pretty much blamed it on them. Yeah, they were involved in it, but they really weren't right. the main people behind it a lot of times. And a lot of times when they put this story out, is that they were rebelling against the Negro people who were pretty much practicing, you know, corrupt government. So they just had right. no choice but to rise up, which all that was BS. You know, they just had a plan to really get back in political power and control and also economic control as well. Exactly, exactly. Because I posted that book earlier today um, about Harry Hayden, and you know, because I wanted people to see PDF about the book that um, you know that was published out there and talking about this particular issue. But yeah, and I mean, you see the same thing happening today, and that's why you know when I talk to people, I, I tell them to pay attention, look at the rush to buy guns, look at the rush to buy ammunition, look at the rush to control the media, look at, you know, um, you know, the PR that they're putting out there. And, I mean, just look at the examples of what's been happening, you know, what happened with Trayvon Martin and, you know, with Jordan Davis and Renisha McBride and all of that. And I tell people to pay attention because, you know, uh, what's happening today, this is, this is organized and it's orchestrating. And we need to see and pay attention to what's happening. It goes back to that old saying, what is it, you know, if, if if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And, you know, so they're pretty much still using the same thing because, you know, it, it always works. So it kind of goes back exactly. to that old saying. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it's just the whole thing is just it's unfortunate. But, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, why this was covered up for 100 years. Well, you know, it's been kind of covered up. You know, it's been, you know, just talked about throughout, you know, Wilmington and also North Carolina, you know, ever since it happened. But it was kind of like a thing of, like, folklore, you know, stuff you talk about on your porch, you know, when you're sitting out on the patio or something. You know, and people would, you know, hear stories about their great-grandparents. They used to live in Wilmington, but they had to suddenly leave, you know, around 1898, 1899. But the thing is that people knew about this, and they – they, you know, some of the, the newspaper articles we uncovered when we show in the film, people were talking about this thing all over the all over the state, all, all over the country, from Sacramento, yeah. New York, um, Texas. We got like people were sending letters saying, "Hey, I got family in Wilmington. You know, we heard we hear that they're just killing black people at will. What are y'all going to do?" And we get, all this right. stuff is documented in like President McKinley's papers of people sending telegrams to him. Saying you know stuff he is going on it. in Wilmington, yeah, he pretty much he pretty much just ignored it. But see, this and that's why I said that you know the Democratic Party was was real smart in their strategy because they kind of controlled certain aspects of the legislative branch eventually, and mm-hmm. a lot of times the president would get his information from certain people in North Carolina, 
and those certain people right. were part, pretty much part of the massacre, so they would tell, nah, you know, there's nothing happening. Only like six people got killed, and everything is cool here. You know what I'm saying? So he, you know, he's not going to listen to a black person that's sending that send telegrams. You know what I'm saying? Right. You know, because he's, you know, he, you know, so, you know, he just pretty, they pretty much just ignored him. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, there's nothing really going on. And then you had certain media outlets, newspapers out of North Carolina saying the same thing, saying that, you know, it's just a couple of people that were shot, like four black people that were killed, one white person shot. But peace is restored in the city now, so everything's cool. You know, so they kind of use that because when you look at Wilmington, it was a major city in North Carolina. But if something went down, it was easy. It was easy to isolate and kind of shut down information because it's similar. Exactly. It's made similar to like a peninsula, and even exactly. though it was your major city, but if something went down, you could easily shut it down and isolate it. And then when you look at it, one of the guys in my film, Kent Chatfield, he breaks all this stuff down. Um, a lot of the people who were, like, you know, over the, the ferry service, over, like, a lot of the mail stuff and stuff like that, a lot of them were part of the white government union and the Democratic Party. So it was easy for them to shut a lot of stuff down and put the actual, you know, put their message out to certain entities in government, you know, and let them know that, nah, that's not what's going on with your hearing, <laughs> you know. And right, then, you know, a lot right, of black right, people right. who left, and, you know, a lot of black people who left just never talked about it. Like, we have some of the actual direct descendants of some of the victims of the massacre in my film. Like, I know in some of your research about this, you probably heard of the name Alex Manley, who owned the, the yeah. newspaper. Yeah, we have, his, yeah. we have his grandson in the film as well. He talked about he didn't even learn about this history till he got about, i say, about 50 years old, you know, because they kind of, you know, they, they, they never really talked about it. He said he knew that... His grandparents were from Wilmington, but he didn't know why they had to move to to Philadelphia. He didn't. He never knew nothing about his grand. You know, father owned like the black newspaper, and his grandfather had an actual daily newspaper. He didn't have a weekly. And they said that his grandfather's newspaper was like one of the only black daily newspapers in the country back then. And he had the yeah. That was one of the first newspaper. things they wanted to shut down. That was one of the yeah, first things yeah, they wanted yeah. to shut down was the newspaper. Yeah, because yeah, because if you don't have no communication to the outside world, you know, you can just pretty much make up your own story. So they had to burn that down, <laughs> you know. And you haven't exactly. had a daily, you haven't had a daily black newspaper in Wilmington since. You had a few weeklies. You still got a weekly there today, but you haven't had a viable daily black newspaper ever since they burned down Manly's Press. Exactly, exactly. And this is the only insurrection, the only coup d'etat that ever happened on U.S. soil. And you do not hear about it, you know, at all for the most part. You know, you have to, you know, kind of be fed some of this information because a lot of people are under the misconception that nothing like that has ever happened on U.S. soil. But going back to what happened in Wilmington, you know, tell everybody when the U.S. government finally acknowledged that this happened officially. Yeah. Well, the thing about, you know, the only coup d'etat stuff, that's, that's true mm-hmm. to a certain extent. But see, the thing is, a lot of people don't know about this. You had coup d'etats happening like this across the country. There was one before Wilmington down in Louisiana. But see, what makes Wilmington different is that these other coup d'etats that they had throughout the country, the government actually came in there and changed it, you know, and put it back in place. Wilmington right. was the only one that the government didn't do anything to let it happen. But, you know, the 
eventually it started, people started talking more about it. Really, it got attention when the whole Wilmington 10 situation happened in Wilmington in 1971, um, when that brought major attention to the city of Wilmington. And, you know, the Wilmington 10 were like political prisoners back then in the 70s. And they recently got pardoned, I think, like last year. They, they finally received their pardon from the governor of North Carolina. But, you know, when that situation happened and then people all over the world, Amnesty International and people like Jesse Jackson and um, um, Angela Davis, everybody was coming to Wilmington and talking about the Wilmington 10. And people were like, okay, what, what, what the hell is going on in this city, you know, with all this racism going on? And then once they saw that, people started talking about 1898. And that's when people started digging and really started talking about what happened in 1898. And that's what kind of brought out the discussion a little bit more back in the 70s and 80s. But I say about the late 90s, you had a few, you know, black um, legislative people who decided, you know, let's do a study on this thing. Let's really get some historical facts together. Let's talk about the impact it's had on the community of Wilmington and throughout the state of North Carolina, and let's develop some type of commission by the state to really document this stuff. Similar to what they did in Tulsa, Tulsa and Rosewood did the same thing, you know, created a commission to really research everything and put everything together for, you know, state view and everything like that. But they did that, I say, late 90s, and finally, finally got together a full report of the whole you know, when uh-huh. we came, 1898 massacre by 2006. And people, whoever's interested in looking at the full report, you can just go to Google and type in Wilmington 1898, you know, riot commission report, and it'll pop right up. And we also have the, the lady who did the report in my film as well for the state of North Carolina. Um, Excellent. So they just decided to do that. But to me, it was more about politics. You know, 1898 was becoming real popular back then. They didn't really care about really doing anything substantial for black people in Wellington. There was a lot of, you know, reparations talk, and a guy by the name of Thomas Wright, he really pushed for a lot of things. But, you know, he that, that whole movement, it was starting to move about reparations and certain things like that for black folks in Wellington and the descendants, but it kind of died down, i say about 2008, when he, he eventually got arrested not not arrested, but you know he had to go to jail off of some some stuff, some type of real estate fraud or something. And when that happened, all that that whole momentum kind of died with it, you know. So they built like a, a BS Memorial Park in Wilmington, and that was it, <laughs> you know. And it pretty wow. much died down. And I say until we kind of came along with what we're doing, we're kind of you know kind of you know kind of lit the fire back up, you know what I'm saying? Because a lot of people kind of just forgot about 1898, you know, but a lot of people are talking about it more. I think that's because of what we've done over the past couple of years of doing the film and promoting certain things and really bringing this history back out again. But I say about 2008, it kind of died down after they built, like, the Memorial Park. You might have seen it. It's like about, like, little... Like it's like little five little statues, and they spent like five hundred thousand, close to five hundred thousand on this stuff. But the amazing part about it is, no one even knows where it is, really. You see exactly. You know, and we talk about that in the film. We kind of go in hard on it. Like no one even knows the place. I know people that that, that were born and raised in Wilmington, and 
they didn't even know where it was at. And I would take them by it. Yeah, like, wow, this is it? <laughs> you know, I would pass by this every day. <laughs> you know, and it's nothing but like a big parking lot with five statues, and they don't even really talk about it. You know, I understand exactly. what they were trying to do. I'm not trying to knock what they were trying to do, but that's that's not really right. helping the situation at all. Exactly. And it's not just Wilmington. It's, you know, the other places as well. You know, um, you know, mm-hmm. there are different places in which, you know, these types of situations occurred, and they put up a little plaque at a park yeah, that, you know, yeah. you know about it. yeah, you got to go hunting for it. It's like treasure hunting, right? And, you, <laughs> and then after you find the plaque, you know, if you just happen to run across it and you're like, what is this about? You write it down and then, you know, you go and look it up online because when I posted, you know, the information about, you know, the show today, there were people, you know, um, you know, blacks and white, but mainly white people that said they knew nothing about Wilmington and whatever happened. And, you know, a lot of, you know, black history, you know, situations that, you know, like this, you know, they've been suppressed. And, you know, the stories coming out more and more. And, you know, this is something that I've said over the years. You know, everybody needs to learn their history. But, you know, one thing I will say is that a lot of white people don't know their history either. And they don't necessarily know the history of, you know, what has been happening with the domestic terrorism in this country. And then when yeah. we start telling these stories that have been passed on, because in some cases, you're right, people zip their lips. They don't talk yeah. about it anymore. It's like it never happened. And, you know, we've talked about the secrets that are kept in the black community. You know, people die with these secrets yeah. and never pass it on. They pass yeah, it on. And mm-hmm. I understand why they did that, especially black people in Wilmington, because of fear. You got to realize, you know, you know, they were during the time of Jim Crow. You know, the the laws wasn't on their side, and they saw what happened. Because see, they did this in broad daylight, this massacre, and it lasted exactly. you know for, for like weeks. Cause I know one of the guys, like the guy we have in the film, Alex Manley's grandson, he talked about how when he finally found out about this history, and he he went to visit his great aunts in Wilmington. And, like, the old house that I think his great-grandfather built, that's still there today. And he went there, and he would just talk about stuff, and they would be cool. He would bring up 1898, and he would say, you know, it was just, just, a, just, just a cloud would just come over their faces, you know, because they actually went through the matter. I think they were, like, 10 years old, and they yeah. were coming home from school, and all this stuff was going down. And they would, you know... Just, just something like a post-traumatic stress would just come over them, and they never really wanted to talk about it. And the same with other descendants that we talk talk to in the film, that they would yeah. ask their grandparents and great grandparents, and they just never would talk about it. And it pretty much it was just out of fear, you know. Right, because so. you know they were you know coming from school, coming from other places. They would mm-hmm. see their neighbors hanging from the trees. Mm-hmm. They had to go and run and hide out in the swamplands, and most of them couldn't swim, so they couldn't get past the river. Yeah. So they had to find other ways, and they had some, you know, allies, some white allies that were trying to hide them out and help them get out of the city, but that is traumatic. That is, you know, yeah. people showing up with, you know, guns at their houses, dragging their relatives out, shooting them, 
in front of them. It was just, it, it's hor- it was horrible. It was a horrible situation. So, yeah, it, it oh, was yeah. kind of like post-traumatic stress disorder. And I just really wish that they would have written it down. But I guess it was just, you know, too much for many of them. But some of the stories got out. And, you know, I'm grateful for that, that, you know, we do have parts of, you know, this history. But it's a lot of people that aren't aware of these things. And I just wish that we could have some type of, you know, um, festival to talk about these yeah. different stories. People can see and, see, and understand to get a better standing. Go ahead, hon. And that's the thing. Um, I know people hit me up all the time. You know, they say, yeah, you know, you know, I want to do documentaries and stuff like that. And they say, you know, you know, you know, how, how did you do yours? I'm like, man, wh- where are you from? Where do you live? You know, I'm like, just look mm-hmm. in your own backyard. You'd be surprised what you find. And that's what I did. Right. Um, cause I'm from Laurenburg, North Carolina, and you know I did a, a project on the Laurenburg Institute, and it's like an old historic black boarding and day school. Um, Dizzy Gillespie, you know the famous jazz musician, he went to school there. My grandfather, a lot of his sisters and brothers went to school there. I never really looked at it as a historical place like that, and they never really looked at it as being like a part of black history, but it was. They were just saying, okay, we just went to school there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So they never right. really looked at it like being an important part of, of black history, but it is. And um, so I, I started researching stuff like that, and then the guy who owns the school now, his grandparents started the school in 1904. It's been the same family for three generations. And he was talking about how no one really wanted to come from Alabama because his grandparents were from Alabama, and he was they were kind of sent by Booker T. Washington to start the school here. And he was like, how no one really wanted to come to North Carolina back in, like, 1901. And I was like, okay, what was going on in North Carolina? And then when I looked right. up some stuff, I ran into what happened in 1898 and all that stuff. Right. I'm like, okay, that's just what happened. And then when you look it down and start researching more, a lot of the red shirts and stuff like that, a lot of the only, the only pictures you can kind of find of red shirts are from when they were held rallies in Laurenburg. So, okay, that's a connection right there. A lot of your red shirts and stuff like that, came from Laurenburg and other areas like that and went to Wilmington, actually, and participated in the massacre. So that was that Laurenburg connection, my hometown connection. Because, like I said, this was a statewide thing. So they held, like, these white supremacy rallies in 1898, 1897 in my hometown and throughout North Carolina. So, okay, my, my hometown had a part of this whole stuff as well. So that's what kind of got my interest as well. That led me to, you know, finally want to do this project about the 1898 massacre. Exactly, exactly, and it's interesting that you brought it up about the boarding school because they've had to, they have they've had these boarding schools all across the country. Yeah. And yeah. you know, a lot of people don't talk about it not only for black students but um, Native American students as well as well as students of other, you know, ethnicities as well. And but. You know, most recently, one of the boarding schools in Florida was in the news because they started unearthing all of these bodies yeah. of, you know, yeah. children that were killed. And, and 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 I've posted some stories, you know, in the past month or two about some of the Indian boarding schools. And, you know, one young lady gave an interview, and she was talking about now she understands why her grandmother, 
you know, do certain things, like they would have early morning beatings and all of that. And when they did the research on some of the Indian boarding schools, that's how they started their day, that, you know, they would wake the children up beating them, you know, 3, 4, 5 o'clock in the morning and forced labor. And so, you know, we just tell people, go out and read the history, not just, you know, of what's happened in black communities, because it happened to other people as well. So I just want to make sure that, you know, we're going to be empathetic, that we understand that it not only just happened to us, and that's why I think it's important that we, you know, converse with people of different ethnicities and races and nationalities or what have you, because in many cases we have a lot more in common than we realize. But, you know, there are certain people that don't want us talking to each other and finding out yeah. how much we actually do have in common. Yeah. Yeah, I know, the, you know, Lombard Institute really wasn't like that. <laughs> you know, like the, the Native American school that you described, yeah, they didn't, they, yeah, it wasn't nothing like that. Um, you know, my grandfather went to school there, my godfather went to school there, and they mm-hmm. owned up, you know what I'm saying? They, they, it's like oh, yeah. when I did that project, when I did that project, it was like the first time I actually heard, you know, black people actually say they enjoyed, go, enjoyed going to school every day. Like, man, you should, you should have heard my grandfather and my godfather talk. It was like, man, we never wanted to leave that place. Say we would stay there all day. We had all type of activities. It, it was cool. You know, because actually, you know, the, the teachers actually cared about students back then. You know, they exactly. you know they all lived together in the same community. So you didn't really act out because a lot of times the teacher knew your parents because a lot of times they hung out with each other. You went to the same church. So you knew not to show up, you know, because they knew your parents. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? And they actually cared about, you know, black people learning and, and striving oh, to yeah. do something. So, well, exactly. You know, I mean, you know, there were some good experiences and there, were, and there were some bad experiences. You had a little bit of both. But, you know, when you were talking about telling people they wanted to do documentaries, look in their own backyard, you, you mm-hmm. never know what you may run across. Yeah. Because, and it doesn't matter you know, how small the town is either because Lawrenceburg is a real, real small town, real small. It doesn't matter how big or large the town is. You know, if there's black people there, there's some black history there hidden somewhere. Right. You just got to find it. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And, you know, one of the things, okay, well, somebody asked a question. They said, when will you be releasing your documentary? Oh, we're going to release this. We have it ready by June, June of this year. Yeah, we're going to release it this summer. We're going to pretty much have um, like a little uh, premiere in Wilmington, and we're also going to do like a little small theatrical release throughout North Carolina, probably about eight cities in North Carolina. And then also, you know, we're going to have some screenings like me and you talked about trying to have something in Chicago. Um, I know I've had a few people hit me up throughout New York, Florida, Tennessee, Baltimore, um, the Oakland area. And I've even had a few people in England, um, African Americans, say, you know, they want to show the film out there as well. Um, so we're going to pretty much, you know, show this thing wherever we can. And also we're going to release it on DVD and Blu-ray as well, and also digital downloads. So I say probably about this summer, June. Yeah, we're definitely Excellent. That is fantastic. But, um, you know, one of the things I did want to ask about was, you know, during the Wilmington, you know, massacre here, you know, can you tell us a little bit about how some of these white supremacists use the Bible to justify their actions? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. Because, see, the, another thing about the Wilmington Massacre, you had a lot of the, the white pastors who actually participated in this as well. You know, and mm-hmm. they also, and they would say, and they, a lot of them had those sermons on Sunday, 
right after the massacre, would say that, you know, this was pretty much God's will. You know, this, right. this needed to happen to restore balance and order, <laughs> you know, because exactly. it's totally white people, white people will be in control, not black folk. So that's the stuff they did. And then also we have a lady by the name of Sonny Benetton that's in my film, and she talks about, you know, a lot of the black church stuff back then. But the church she attends, and she's a historian of um, Central Baptist Church, you know, their pastor from back then, the Reverend J. Allen Kirk, you know, he was a real big activist person back then, African-American, and they tried to kill him. And I know they said during the massacre, it was a whole bunch of white pastors outside of that church were ready to burn the church down, telling that pastor to come out so they can kill him. You know what I'm saying? These were white pastors, you know? Exactly. And that was the stuff that they were, they were, they were, they were perpetuating out there, saying that, you know, this needed to happen to restore, you know, balance and order. So it's similar exactly. to that That's whole thing of slavery. Yeah, it's it's similar to that whole thing during slavery, how they used the Bible to justify slavery. It was that same type of thing, to try to justify the master. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, they're still doing that to this day. And, you know, if you know, what would you tell people today to look out, basically, you know, like we were just talking about how, again, they were buying up the guns and, you know, uh, railing against the political system and, you know, against any blacks being in any type of position of authority and, you know, again, using the Bible to justify their actions. You know, how do you compare what was happening then and what's happening now in our country? Well, I know, like, in the country, it's pretty much the same thing, Uh, but I think black people are more of a disadvantage now because we're more separated than we were back then. At least back then, we were kind of together, and but just the laws and stuff weren't on our side to protect us. But now I think we're at a greater disadvantage because we're we're just separated now. You know, we don't have any type of community. You know, we we're all separated. You know, we're divided by light skin, dark skin. You know, good hair, bad hair. I got I, I got a BA degree. You only got a high school diploma, <laughs> you know. So right, right now right. We're, we're in a worse situation than we ever been, even pr- to me prior to 1898, because we're just so divided as a community now that they can do anything to it, and we see that, you know, whether it's Trayvon Martin situation or just here in Charlotte that happened not too long ago, a guy got killed by like this white cop. He got in the car yeah. accident. He asked him for help. You know what I'm saying? They they killed him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and exactly. then you hear about it for like a couple of weeks, and you know you had this black lawyer defending the white cop, saying that oh, you know, we're going to show that this that this killing was justified. I'm like, wow, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Exactly. And you don't exactly. hear about it no more, you know. And that's and that's exactly. usually what happens. Even, even, yeah, yeah, even a family member of mine. Yeah, yeah, he's a, yeah. Yeah, he's a former football player. I know. Even even in my own family, um, I had a cousin in Virginia who was killed, you know, similar, you know, similar to that. He was killed, like, in 2007, you know, by a cop, you know, unjustly. And, you know, we had the big marches and everything like that, but nothing happened. The guy got off. He recently got a promotion, <laughs> you know. Wow. So, yeah, and that, that was kind of like my last march. You know, I was like, you know what, this 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 ain't working. You know, it really showed me what, what this whole system is about. And he recently just got a promotion as well, you know. And it really doesn't hit you until it hits you, you know, someone in your own family, 
and eventually it's, it's probably going to happen. You know, a lot of people are like, ah, you know, it must have been something that they did or whatever like that. Nah, that's not the case at all. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, um, the whole thing is, you know, is unfortunate. And that's why I'm glad that, you know, we're having conversations like this. And, you know, that we're putting more information out here. And I can only hope that some of the older generations as well as the younger generations will hear, you know, like these podcasts and see your film and and start, it, I hope that they're intrigued enough to go out and do some research on their own, you know, yeah. because you have to want the knowledge. You have to thirst for that knowledge and go out here and find out. And I'm talking about, you know, you know, people of all races, again, you know, ethnicities and nationalities. And I'm glad that this is getting out because so much of our history has been, you know, um, you know, suppressed, and a lot of it has been revised. You know, that's one of the issues that I have with some of the history, you know, is being revised over and over. And, you know, some of us are being written out of our own history, which I find interesting. And how oh, do we yeah, allow yeah. that to I, I I say it about fifty or hundred years, you know, you know, Malcolm X and Dr. King probably gonna be white. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, you know, you know, so but I know like when I approach this documentary, you know, 'cause I, I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm I'm just a lover of documentaries. I love documentaries, but I know the average person probably isn't. So I kinda wanted to approach this thing a little differently. Um, just like the track I sent you. You know, we're gonna have like a like a free digital download of like download of like a little soundtrack. And I wanted to incorporate like, you know, hip hop music and stuff like that into my film and spoken word to, to describe and really show people certain aspects of the massacre of black progress and stuff like that. I wanted to kinda of make this film kinda of interesting. So the the average person that really don't care about documentaries, they still would enjoy watching. And especially the youth, because, you know, music and stuff like that, they like that type of stuff. You know, so I kind of exactly. wanted to incorporate certain elements in this film to make it interesting for everyone, so everyone can get something out of it. The person like myself who likes documentaries, and also the person who really thinks that documentaries are boring, and but they'll they'll see this, you know, like wow, this is kind of interesting. I like the music, you know, I like certain things about it. You know, let me look at this, you know, even more. Exactly, exactly, you know, because it's important that we get that information out there. But, yeah, we have to, you know, know our audience. And, you know, by incorporating hip-hop in there with a positive message, you know, not saying that, you know, what happened in this situation was positive, but, you know, it's, it's, it's educational. And that's what I mean when I'm talking about positivity in this respect. And we have one of the tracks, and we're going to play that for you guys at the end of the show. But, you know, it's talking about, you know, what was happening. And, you know, in the track, the young man is, like, talking about, you know, basically running for his life. And he was talking about seeing his neighbors, you know, hanging from trees. And all he could think about was getting away. And I think he said he was the only one that knew how to swim, which, you know, yeah, that was a good track. It's by this artist. He, he's an independent artist out of Charlotte. His name's Pro. It was produced by my uh, by my boy Sean Washington. And Sean, he pretty much produced like the whole promotional soundtrack that we're pretty much going to put on the website for free once we get the website up and everything. But um, yeah, it's just pretty much you know you know the guy Pro. He pretty much just painted this picture of a young boy. 
that was going through the, the Wilmington Massacre. And it's, that, that song is pretty much just like the song we're going to play at the beginning of the film as well, to showcase just the massacre altogether overall. But he pretty much paints a picture of, you know, a young boy who's going through the massacre, you know, seeing all this stuff happening and trying to get away and also help people escape as well, including himself. Yeah. And really paints a picture of the whole, you know, experience of what a black person really went through back then. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, going back to, you know, something that you spoke about earlier about how even some of the pastors, the white pastors that were out there that may have had black parishioners or congregants, you know, out there demanding that their black congregants come out so that they can be, you know, um, chastised and lynched and, you know, this was God's will. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, I look at, you know, some of the religious people in our community, not just Christian, but just all of the different religions. And I'm trying to understand how they don't realize that religion was a tool that was given to them to keep them oppressed and to justify, you know, the oppression of, you know, certain groups and certain people. You know, the same thing is being done even to this day. But, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. In my opinion, you know, it, it's just like anything. You know, it can be used for good or it can be used for bad. Like we talk about that right. in, in my film as well, how how black people, how the black church, you know, how black people started demanding from the black church back then, hey, y'all just need to stop talking about preaching, you know, getting pie in the sky once we die. We need y'all help or build us from some businesses and so we can be competitive. And we talk about that in the film with Dr. Claude Anderson and a few other people, how a lot of your black businesses that were started back then, even the black newspaper by Alex Manley, he got his startup money from the black church. And a lot of the black banks that were in Wilmington back then, schools and everything, got their money, their startup money from the black churches because they actually demanded, like, oh, hold on now, you know, you're just not going to talk about the pie in the sky stuff. Yeah, that's good, but we need y'all help of galvanizing some resources, and that's what they did back then. But you see that today they're not doing that, and black people, they're not even asked the church that they're there. But back then they were doing that. Right, exactly. And, you know, I agree with you. You know, there there are, you know, a lot of good things that have come from the church per se. And, you know, even now there are some churches out there that are trying to help. You know, they're trying to feed the hungry. They're trying to, you know, in some cases provide economic development, but it's not as prevalent as it once was. Yeah. And that's because the yeah. people aren't putting the demands on yeah. these black packs. There's not only, you know, about economic development in areas where the churches are, but just any type of outreach, you know, social justice activism or anything, you know, that's not as prevalent as it used to be. And that's why I will give Moral Mondays. I've been giving them their credit from the very beginning before they even get any press coverage. You know, at least they're getting out there, they're protesting, and they're protesting for everyone. And so... You know, I'm hoping that, you know, that will galvanize other people to get out and stand up for their rights. And hopefully, you know, you will have more people finding, you know, um, 
you know, it within themselves, their wherewithal, if you will, to get out here and take some of that money that they bring into the church and build businesses. That's some of the, you know, that's one of the questions that I've said over the years. It's like you're bringing in all of this income from the tithes and offerings, and people don't know about the faith-based initiatives. People don't know about all of the state and federal grants that they're getting, and those, you know, federal and state grants pay for the food donations. It pays for some of those after-school programs, which still leaves them with a bunch of money from the tithes and offerings. Why aren't they building businesses and opening, opening businesses to give people jobs, you know, in their neighborhoods? And, you know, that's what I'm saying. We need to make them more accountable. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree on that. You know, so, you know, hopefully, you know, the things are changing and, you know, people will, because it seems like people are starting to wake up slowly but surely. And so that's why I'm glad that, you know, we're putting our message out there and, you know, people are listening and, you know, again, you know, we advance and we, you know, encourage critical thinking. We encourage logic, you know, but we also, you know, encourage understanding and compassion as well, you know, because, you know, I just believe that I am my brother's keeper, but that's me because there are times when you have to speak for someone who can't speak for themselves. Because, you know, even going back to, you know, what we were talking about with the Wilmington Massacre here, you know, those people were in shock. They couldn't tell their own stories. And if they were still around to this day, if there were still any descendants, because I think the last one passed away, um, it was this older woman. And I think I saw the interview with her. She was the very last, you know, descendant survivor. And, you know, the woman pretty much, you know, when she was telling her story, you could just see the fear in her eyes. Mm. You know, so also, I know also when we discuss in this film that um, a lot of people went to the state of New Jersey. Um, you have a town there that's still there today. Um, you know, Stedman Graham, you know, Oprah's boyfriend, he's from there. And, you know, he knows about the history and everything and that connection with 1898. You know, we actually went up there and did some filming. It's a place called Whitesboro, New Jersey. And that pretty much became like, like a safe haven for black people after the massacre. Like a lot of people after the massacre, a lot of them went to Durham, a lot of them went to other areas throughout the state. But also a lot of people went to this place that eventually got called Whitesboro. Um, George H. White, George Henry White, he was like the last black congressman pretty much in the Jim Crow era. And he was from North Carolina. And eventually he lost his seat in North Carolina. And he pretty much said, you know what? You know, this whole massacre stuff happened. Now we got Jim Crow set in. You know, we're not really going to make it like we used to prior to 1898. So let's just move north. I'm going to get some land. And from, like, the help of, like, Booker T. Washington and, and a few other business people, you know, he bought some land up in New Jersey in Cape May County, and he just decided to call it, you know, Whitesboro. And a lot of people from Wilmington, you know, after the massacre, they just went up there, moved up there. And a lot of people up there, you know, who actually great-grandchildren and stuff like that, they, they say, you know, they remember, you know, their, their great-grandparents and grandparents talk about, you know, how they, they lived in Wilmington and about the massacre, but they told them they never really talk about it. because I guess because they didn't want the same thing to happen up there that happened down there. So that, right. that's another part of the history that's never really been talked about, but we show it in the film that you had places like Whitesboro and other places that were started as a result of the massacre. 
it's pretty much a new start, you know, like a, a yeah. like a safe haven type of place for people after the massacre. And I know I've been telling people about it, like, wow, I, knew, I never even knew that. Like, yeah, man. Excellent, excellent. And then, you know, talk about, you know, the land grab in Wilmington after they, you know, killed and, you know, chased everybody pretty much out of town. You know, let's talk about the land grab, you know, which, you know, it made see, see a lot land, of white. Mm-hmm. See, the land, see, the land thing has always been interesting because you had, like, researchers and historians over the years saying, ah, oh, you know, you know, black people didn't lose their land and all that, which is all BS. I know the stuff we've uncovered kind of debunks all of that. And me and uh, the guy Kent Chatfield, we discovered a whole bunch of stuff, different records. They didn't really do the land. See, they didn't do the land grab right, you know, right during the massacre. They waited years later. They pretty much waited until like 1908, 1910, 1915 to really start taking people's property. And it's pretty much, you know, you know the whole mortgage thing that we had a few mm-hmm. years ago? Of a mortgage crisis. That's pretty much what they yeah. did in Wilmington. They pretty much did like the mortgage scheme that happened recently here in the United States. This is what pretty much what they yeah. did in Wilmington. That's how they were able to actually take a lot of black folks' property and stuff like that, you know, and, exactly. and really you know aggregate it and distill it and disperse it out. They pretty much did a mortgage scheme. That's pretty much what it exactly. boils down to. And that's what happened with this large mortgage crisis. You're exactly correct. You know, we've talked about that before. A lot of the wealth that had been built up in communities of color, you know, was snatched. It was taken away. You know, it was stolen from them. And so that's the reason why in many cases, you know, a lot of us are starting over now. Yeah. And see, that's, and that's why I said this Wilmington, this Wilmington situation is really interesting because they were real organized about theirs. They made sure, like, okay, you know, we're just not – because you had some places, they, they just took the land. You know, they just didn't care. They just took it, and they showed that they took it. So you kind of knew that what they actually did. They killed the person and just took their property. But the Wilmington thing, they were real organized with that. You know, they waited years later when they put in these different mortgage schemes where they would, like, just lock a black person, lock a black man up for so-called reckless eyeballing. And we got the jail records and everything where they call yeah. them, you know, reckless eyeballing at a white woman. So they'll lock them up and just have the wife come down there and put the property up to bail, you know, their husband out of jail, and then they'll just, just take their property. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Exactly. They would do stuff like that. Exactly. You know? And so that's those, those that's still happening Yeah, yeah. It's pretty much what you see happening today in a way. That's why I said they use those same type of, mortgage scheme practices and tactics, what you see today, they pretty much kind of started those things in Wilmington. Like I said, they were very organized and clever on how they did it. Exactly, exactly. And it's just, you know, it's unbelievable. And, you know, it, it just keeps recycling itself over and over, the same tactics and you know, but it goes back to, you know, what I said earlier, you know, you know, how. And, I mean, I know you don't necessarily have an answer for this, so, you know, it's, it's rhetorical, but, you know, how do we feel safe enough to build something up and protect it? Knowing that, well, you know. I think that, mm-hmm. Well, 
you know, that's why I got people like Dr. Claude Anderson, you know, the author of Powernomics, Black Label White Wealth to be in the film. And also um, we have, like, um, one of the top black economists in the country, um, Professor Sandy Darity from Duke University. He actually worked on the race riot commission report, the economic aspect as well. And I have him talk about this. You know, pretty much we, we, just, we just have to build. You know what I'm saying? We just have to just do it and also get our economics together. And his whole thing is, you know, both of them really is, we, we have to really push for reparations as well because a lot of the stuff that they broke down, it, it's scary, just the wealth gap. Yeah, I know that Professor Darity, he was talking about some of their studies that they've done is that the wealth gap is so bad between blacks and whites is that the only way black people could catch up is if we save our salaries for, like, I think three or four years. We have to save all of our salaries together for, like, three or four years. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's the way that can happen. That's impossible. And it's like reparations pretty much is the only way you could actually really catch up to somewhat. You know, that's pretty much the only way to actually catch up and kind of bridge that divide. Because there's, there's no way in hell that black people can just save their salary, their whole full salaries for, like, three or four years. There's no way that can happen. That, that's, that's how that's how great the the wealth divide is amongst black. Oh yeah, whites. yeah. You know, yeah. The inequality gap, you know, is outrageous, and you're absolutely correct. You know, we've talked about this, and it's a conversation that needs to be had over and more in depth. You know, because I don't believe people really truly understand, you know, the severity of you know what's happening and how that came about. On the privileged mutiny series that I did, I did one, and I I talked about affirmative action, um, yeah. specifically. But when I was talking about affirmative action, I was talking about you know, the federal housing, you know, programs, you know, HUD. Uh, I talked about, you know, unemployment insurance. I talked about welfare and all of that. And, you know, I basically showed how those programs were started as affirmative action, but for white people. And how they were able to, yeah, build their wealth that way as well as with the homesteading and I showed all of it. And, you know, we talked about it a little bit, and I'm going to do a whole show on this eventually, about, you know, the misconception of reverse racism, the misconception yeah. of, you know, how black people have this privilege. And, and that's not true. There's a lot of white privilege. And, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, when, you know, the civil rights um, law was passed, basically, you know, Blacks were able to gain, make some gains from that, and you know it's been a little bit over fifty years, and it's it's just amazing how the very little that we have, you know, received from that, how you have people out here saying that we have an unfair advantage, when most people don't realize that affirmative action benefits white women more than anyone else. Exactly. And see, that's the whole thing. And um, I know Dr. Anderson talks about this in my film, you know, and he talks about it in Wilmington, but it's pretty much all over the country is that, you know, when integration happened, it pretty much made black people a guest. And we pretty much gave up, you know, any type of businesses, any type of, you know, economic structure and everything when integration happened. You know, so we pretty much gave up everything. Our communities, a lot of us left the communities. Um, 
we pretty much say, you know what, we can stay around white folks, you know, let's be all happy and, and stuff like that. But, you know, white folks just left. <laughs> you know, if, if, if more, if a whole bunch of black people came to the area, they would just move, you know, the whole thing of white flight. So right. you still became, you know, segregated eventually over time. And you see that a lot now. Even in my hometown of Laurenburg, I saw that where you had black people moving to white areas and then, you know, they're, they're cool with, you know, a couple of black people coming there. But when black people start becoming in mass numbers in that area, they'll pack up and move. And then those areas end up becoming the ghetto for some reason. You know, so it's right. like, you know, and, just that whole, the, the integration thing, it, it's a good thing and it's a bad thing at the same time because we gave up a lot. We gave up our schools, gave up our institutions, our culture, everything. And when you look at it now, it's like, you know, what have we really gained from it? And, you know, again, with the Privileged Mutiny, you know, um, it was a three-part series. And I did one series called Inner City Blues. And I talked about redlining. I talked about white flight. I talked about how, you know, even with the interstate, you know, um, projects, you know, with the public policies and the public planning, how basically they'll designate one area as a blight. And basically the majority of the people that live in those areas are poor and they're minorities. And so what they do is they design the highway or whatever through those particular areas because we're having this fight in Chicago with one particular area called Inglewood. And, you know, this is an area that's, you know, um, it used to be one of the worst parts of the city, but, you know, they're gentrifying, Mm -hmm. home values are going up in some parts of it. Now the Mm -hmm. parts where will be considered a blight. That's where they want to build a highway through. And this yeah. is their way of relocating people, you know, out of a certain area and pushing them around to other parts of the city where they prefer to have them. But it also keeps rich landowners rich because basically they tell these people, well, you can stay in this area if you can afford the rent, knowing that these people can barely afford for the rent that they're paying now, but again, you know, it being hard for, you know, um, people of color in in some cases to, you know, get home loans, to get, you know, any type, so they can't become homeowners, they end up renting, and it keeps rich landowners rich, and we know the majority of the rich landowners do not look like you or me. Yeah, and you have that going on in Wilmington today, and that's another thing, I was supposed to release this film last year. But mm-hmm. I just didn't want it to be like a history lesson. I really wanted to show what's still going on in Wilmington today. So last year, this, this, this film, this stuff that's going on in Wilmington today, and actually talked to, to certain activists that are in Wilmington today that are trying to deal with certain issues that's going on there. And the same mm-hmm. thing is happening. Because, um, like, Wilmington, Wilmington is an interesting place. Um, it's a major Hollywood place. Um, you have Screen Gym Studios there. Um, it's a major film production area. It's been major since the, you know since the '90s on up to today. Um, Iron Man three, a uh, whole bunch of major blockbusters have been filmed in, in Wilmington, and a couple of TV shows uh, like Sleepy Hollow that comes on Fox. They filmed that in Wilmington. Wilmington is a real, real major hub for for the whole film and TV industry, and it's also real big with tourism as well. And, after, you know, as, as a result of that, with tourism and all of that, you know, a lot of what's going on now is a lot of this movement of black people 
away from certain historical areas. Like you have an area called Brooklyn. And the Brooklyn area is actually where they actually did most of the massacre back in 1898, but it's still there today. Mm -hmm. And it's close to the downtown riverfront area where a lot of your tourism is going on. That area in Castle Street, they're really gentrifying those areas now. Pretty much, you know, like what you were saying, like what they're doing in Chicago, they're doing the same thing in Wilmington or wherever. They're pretty much finding different ways of rezoning and doing stuff like that to kind of move black people out of these areas so they can fully gentrify it. And they're also bringing a lot of these new tech companies and tech startups to the Wilmington area because Wilmington is a beautiful place. You got the beach, you got the beaches, you got all these sorts of things going on there, the film and TV industry. It's a beautiful place. Cost of living isn't that high, especially if you're you know, making a decent salary. It's real cheap in New York. So a lot of times they're bringing companies from like New York and other areas to come to Wellington mm-hmm. and relocate their businesses there. And so out of that comes this whole gentrification process of kind of finding different ways and strategies of moving, you know, black people out of these areas. And also a lot of the white businesses that were in the suburbs, a lot of them are relocating their businesses back to the downtown districts of Wilmington exactly. as well. Yeah. Yes, and that property that's close to the downtown area, because that happened here in Chicago where they tore down some of the projects, you know, like Cabrini, mm-hmm. where, you know, that, you know um, Good Times was based on. Mm-hmm. And that yeah, that property is very valuable. It's close to here in Chicago. It's close to the lakefront and it's close to downtown. And oh, what's yeah. happening is, you know, a lot of these people that did the white flight, they moved out to the suburbs, yeah. and the commute is horrible. They realize how mm-hmm. valuable that that property is close to the downtown. So they want their cities back. So they're moving back to the cities, and, you know, um, Marissa in the chat room was saying that, you know, when we were talking about, you know, the property, how some of these cities are doing it under the auspices of gang control. And I just released um, an article, yeah, about what's happening in Los Angeles about how, you know, this one, a couple of particular areas that were considered quote unquote bad or ghetto or what have you, how they basically gentrified it, outpriced it and forced certain people out of the neighborhood and in this particular article the gang members allegedly come back on the weekend, so they're only weekend gang members. And it's it's just funny you mentioned it because they haven't funny you mentioned that. I'm glad everyone is hearing you say that that it's just not in Wilmington. This has happened all across the country. Because in Wilmington they're they're doing it. The exact same thing is happening. Um, we talk about that in my film as well. Um, they having the so-called game, you know, activity that's going on in Wilmington, and they've been promoting that real heavily in Wilmington for, I say, the past year, for the past year now. And that's another thing what they're doing. They're pumping all this money into, like, law enforcement, millions of dollars. And it's, the only thing it is is just a way, what you were just saying, for them to justify to relocating people and redistricting and everything. They're doing the same thing in Los Angeles, Chicago, same thing they're doing in Wilmington. It's the exact exactly. same thing. But I'm kind of glad you brought that up. A lot of people think it's just a Wilmington issue. No, this is going all across America. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, like we were talking about earlier, you know, they have a format, they have a template, and it yeah. works. 
It's yeah. effective and it works, and yeah. it's implemented all across the country. And that's why I say we have to be, be become more politically active, more politically informed, and you know um, we have to understand our buying power, our political power, and start utilizing that to the best of our ability. Because, you know, when we talk about racism, you know, especially when I talk about it, you know, on this show, I'm talking more about structural racism, institutional racism, and, you know, you know, we're trying to get it in people's heads that a lot of this is being done via public policy, via gover- government mandate. You need to understand how your government works and how it allows certain things like this to happen. And, you know, tying it back to what we were talking about with this last, you know, economic, you know, bust that we had, you know, again, you know, the deregulation of, you know, the stock market, deregulation of certain markets, you know, the stock market as well as the mortgage, you know, market and all of that, that is how all of this was able to happen, which is why, quite a few of these hedge fund managers that were selling junk stocks, junk bonds, how they were able to get away with it and how some of them, you know, you know, renounced their American citizenship and moved to other countries so that they could not be prosecuted. But in the meantime, you know, people who have owned their property for generations that may have taken out, you know, a little a little mortgage so that they can get them a new car or maybe get the sump pump fixed on a house or, you know, maybe put up a new fence or what have you, how they lost their homes when they may have taken out a ten you know, a home that was valued at two, three hundred thousand dollars, that home was taken away for a ten thousand dollar mortgage that, you know, had a usury rate of twenty, twenty five percent interest, you know, people that are losing their homes now because, you know, they've owned the homes debt-free for 20, 30 years, but the property taxes went up. They can't afford to pay the property taxes or they don't get the bill and they have liens put on their property and somebody comes and buy their $300,000 home that, you know, has been passed down six generations, they come and buy that for two, three thousand $3,000 that they paid on that person's, you know, um, property taxes. It's horrible. Yeah. And see, that's the thing. I know, like, we film, you know, with this film, you know, we found a few people who still have. I know one lady we we interviewed. Um, you know, she really just made made my day um, and gave me some type of hope because she was like, you know, they're trying to in the area where they're trying to gentrify the whole Brooklyn area. She was like, she's not giving up her her house. She said that people hit her up all the time, you know, trying to make some type of offer um, of her uh-huh. selling that house. She said her great grandfather, I think, built that house. I think eighteen ninety six. You know, and she said that, you know, she's not giving it up. And that really, that made me happy, you know, that that you had someone like that said, no, nah, I'm not giving up, you know, what what he he made and built for me, you know, and, and just the future generations of my family. You know, I'm not going to do that. But you still have some people, whether it's Wilmington or wherever, they're just willing to give it up, you know. And a lot of times, right. a lot of times you know, it's like you can't blame them because, they put you in a certain position, like in Wilmington, where the economics and everything's not really in your favor. You know, it's hard to find work a lot of times. And, you know, a lot of people just saying, you know what, I'm just going to go to move to Charlotte or Raleigh or Atlanta, you know, and just, and just start over. I'm just going to sell this house, forget it. You know, you got all this crime and violence going on. I'm just going to cash out and just move, you know. And that's what happened with a lot of our people. You know, they just want to just cash out and just move away. 
And then when they moved to that, you know, Atlanta or whatever like that, the same thing happened in there as well, so. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And so that's why, you know, I just think it's important that we start building businesses, supporting one another, and understanding what's happening. And, you know, again, if we became more politically and economically astute, you know, we would have a better understanding of what's happening and, you know, the different methodologies that are being used, you know, basically to disenfranchise us, you know, just communities of color in general. And I just wish that, you know, all the members of the different communities, you know, of color could kind of come together and understand that, you know, all of our oppressions are tied together. Yeah. And once we get a better understanding of that, I think we'd be able to move a lot further and get a lot more done. It's easier to work together. And, you know, again, we do have some white allies out there, so I don't want to ignore them because, you know, there's there were some white allies and there are some white allies out there that see what's happening out here, and they say it's wrong, and they're willing to come out and say that it's wrong and, you know, try to help implement some public policies to reverse, you know, some of what's been done to us. But, you know, it's going to take us collectively to work together to kind of get this done. But, you know, uh, it, it's, it's just, I don't know. You know, I have hope for the future. I don't think that we're doomed. You know, I don't believe that humanity is doomed, but you know, I just think that, you know, by having shows like this and, you know, your documentary, that hopefully this will wake some people up. You know, it will cause them to, you know, go out and do some research and get a better understanding of what's happening, you know, around us. And so, you know, I guess my question to you is what would you say to the people out there that want to know, you know, why certain communities of color are in a position that they're in and, you know, you know, is there hope for the future? Uh, I think there's hope. Um, I, I kind of live by just the old African proverb, you know. Uh, I think the saying is, you know, every time a child is born, you know, that means that God hasn't given up on humanity yet. Um, I kind of live by that, by that motto, you know what I'm saying? And I think that our people can really get it together. First, we just got to know how we got in the situation, first of all, you know, because you really can't fix your situation until you realize how you got into it. And it really hasn't happened to us by accident. Pretty much was was designed to be that way. And I think once we understand how we got into that situation, we must you know, we must understand that we got to come together collectively, you know, economically, politically and socially. You know, it has nothing right. to do with religion. Has you know, it has nothing to do with religion, it has nothing to do with your educational background or your job occupation. You know, we have to come right. together collectively and really build, you know, as one. And I think that's really the only way we can really reverse a lot of the stuff that has happened to us over the years. Exactly. And I agree with that. And, you know, with that there, you know, I'm going to thank Christopher for taking time out to spend with us today, and, you know, um, again, didn't you have a crowdfund? Is that still happening? Are you still? No, nah, that ended. Uh, we had that. We had the Kickstarter going. I say it was like December 2nd to like January 2nd. Yeah, they ended on January 2nd. We didn't reach the goal, 
but it's cool. You know, we're still moving forward with the film editing and everything, and we're still going to release it. You know, Joan and some. Excellent, excellent. So, you know, once, you know, like I said, we're going to work together to try to get you seen, you know, get the documentary seen in a couple of places that I know would have an interest in, you know, seeing it. And when it's released, you know, of course, I'm going to do some promotion. We'll have you come back then. And, you know, we can talk about it a little bit more. And, you know, congratulations. And, you know, we're proud of you. And, you know, I'm just I am looking forward to this, and a lot of people are going to be educated by this film as to what happened and how it went about. And like you said, he's going to show you the different newspaper articles. He's going to show you the different laws that were implemented, you know, especially with the land grab, how they were able to snatch these people's land and, you know, how all of that came about. But, you know, I want to go ahead and I want to play this track, um, and it's called It's a Massacre. And then after we play this track, we're going to bring Chris back and we're going to, um, you know, um, phase out the show. So, guys, here, take a listen to this. It's a massacre. It's a massacre. It's a massacre. Woke up to a nightmare, blood on the ground. Rifle blast along, he barks the bloodhounds. He can't scream. Shook. Shadow of the feet by the door Just yesterday, I was at my uncle's store My aunt fussing, cause I picked a scab on my sword Now sweat creeping out my pores And my heart racing, I gotta get out the door I hear the screams and the curses Begin quoting Bible verses Pick my head out the kitchen window Through the trees is a road Across the road there's a river The only black boy who can swim Destiny meets fate, I just wanna escape, I'm going for it, wait. I'm going for it, wait. As I climb out the window, drop to the ground. What I thought was a puddle of water, what's blood on the ground? And I looked right, and I looked left, nothing in sight. I looked up and saw Mr. Jeff's wife. Hanging from a tree in a pretty blue dress Couldn't kill a spirit, but they had to hang up flesh And I took off through the woods, never looking back Tree limbs smacking my face, heart pounding Like the sledgehammer, John Henry Stomach going empty, I see the road ahead But wait, I hear the horses near I kneel down, I let them cross Hear the screams of my town As I shoot them down, blood everywhere A massacre, woman is on fire
let's just wait. was a great song and you know again if you all didn't catch you know some of the lyrics you know he he was the only one that knew how to swim and he basically had people on his back and he did it several times you know I think he said like 20 more times getting them across the river you know working together and he was running through the woods and blood all on his feet and you know is there an estimate as to how many people were killed during that massacre yeah, see, that's another thing, like I was saying, with this whole event that makes it kind of peculiar, is that no one really knows the official number. Um, you know, they, they've been reports saying that it was just, you know, 6, 10, 50. Uh, some said it was like 125. Uh, but from my research in doing this, I would say it's, you know, in the thousands. Um, because you had, I think, just from old stories, even from the white side. Um, I know one of the guys we have in the film. He talked about growing up in, in the in the church in Wilmington. Uh, he talked about how he knew a guy that was actually a participant in the massacre. You know, the guy was like like ninety something years old then. This was back in the fifties, and you know, I think he was like a like a teenager then. I think his father participated, and he, his father actually had him out there participating in killing. And he said they, they killed, like, thousands of black people. So it was, like, thousands to me, thousands, and also just thousands of just black people just leaving the city altogether. But there's no really official estimate because no one really knows because they didn't really keep an actual log of it. And they tried to lie about a lot of this stuff as well. Wow, you know, and it's just, you know, it's amazing. But the people that suffered in the Wilmington Massacre as well as, you know, Black Wall Street and the other, you know, massacres and riots that happened, you know, throughout this country, do you think any of their descendants will ever receive any type of reparations? I don't know. I know, um, you know, the people in Wilmington, They've been fighting hard. I know the people in Tulsa. I know Charles Obertree. Um, I know he's been on the case helping um, certain descendants from the Tulsa massacre um, receive certain benefits. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't think so, but I think that, you know, we just got to keep striving and keep, you know, moving forward with it because I think that that's still a debt that, that needs to be paid to our people. But at the time right now, I don't know. Um, I know I've ran into a lot of black people that say, oh, you know, we don't deserve anything, you know. <laughs> so it's like even as black people, we're divided on that, on the whole reparation aspect. It's like how we're divided on light skin, dark skin, good hair, bad hair. You know, I work, you know, I have a good job making 80000 a year. You only make 20000 a year at your job. You know, we're even divided on the whole reparation aspect. So until right. we can kind of get on the same page on one accord, I don't think anything's going to happen. I think until we get on the same page economically, that, that I think the real change will happen. But if we still stay separated like that, I don't think nothing's going to happen. 
Yeah, because, you know, we'll be too busy fighting each other to get anything done, able to advance, you know, anyway. But, you know, again, we are looking forward to this. I'm truly looking forward to that. And I put the information in the chat room, but for those that are interested, um, you can go on Facebook and look up Wilmington on Fire. Actually, it's facebook.com slash Wilmington on Fire, one word. And, you know, subscribe to his page. And, again, they're looking to have this released, you know, by the end of June, sometime in June. And also they're, you know, taking it. Hopefully we'll be able to get him to bring it around the country and, you know, screen them all over because, you know, this is a story that needs to be told. This is something that we need to see. This is a discussion that needs to be had, you know, not only in our living rooms but also in academia as well, you know, to see yeah. what has happened and how it transpired. I mean, there is something that, you know, we all can come away with from this documentary and, you know, just this incident as well as the other incidents that have happened across this country. And, you know, what I find unfortunate is that there are a lot of communities, a lot of people that are embarrassed by a lot of this history, and that's both black and white as well as other, you know, cultures. But, you know, this is, we need to talk about these things. It happened. You know, us not talking about it is not going to make it go away. Us not talking about it is not going to take away the fact that we are still dealing with repercussions from that. You know, again, you know, it's talking about the fear. And, you know, some of the people that lived through this, you know, their grandparents, great-grandparents, a lot of that fear was passed down. And with some of the younger folks, they don't understand why it was, you know, they had fear. Like, you know, when you were talking about the boarding school, people didn't want to come to North Carolina. They didn't know why, but they know in their family, they said, no, nah, don't mess with that North Carolina. And so and you're explaining how some of that came about. And I'm not laughing at the situation, but I'm just laughing at the fact that, you know, you because know, I know in my family, you know, we're told, no, you don't want to go over there. But no one can tell us why. I've no, I've, I've had people. I know when I first started this project, um, like 2011. You know, when I first started getting everything together. I know a few people say, you know, man, you know, you don't need to do this, you know that, or <laughs> you know, uh, you know, people will come after you. I'm like, I don't care, man. You know, it's just, it is what it is. And the thing is about this, you know, I, I started this project. I didn't have a job at all. I pretty much used my savings drained out my savings and everything. I was like, you know what, I'm going to go out, you know, I'm going to go out on faith, whatever. Whatever happens, happens. And I think that, you know, we need to, to have this type of film. So I just pretty pretty much just put all my savings, all the little money I had into this project, you know, having no job or no type of income at all. And I was just fortunate and blessed to, to work with people um, who actually believed in this project and believed in me. And they really wanted to see this thing you know, happen as well, so. Excellent, excellent, excellent. And I just gave a link to your Facebook page, your personal Facebook page, to um, this young lady. She wants to help you out, you know, help write up some press releases and articles and um, a lot of that stuff, you know, for you. So, um, you know, she will be contacting you any moment. You know, so, you know, again, I'm glad that you came on the show and that, you know, we have people out here, you know, not only that's part of the, you know, listening audience, but you also know that I'm down with you. And um, we're going to put that out there and we're going to, you know, help you push this. 
you know, because we believe in this project and people need to hear this story. And, you know, we just let you know that how much we appreciate you and appreciate what you're doing and the information that you're putting out there. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you for even having me on and, and actually, you know, wanting to, to support this thing. I, I really appreciate it. All right. Well, guys, you know, we would like to thank Chris Everett, and, you know, we are, you know, looking forward to the release of Wilmington on Fire. Everybody, it should be taking place this June. It's going to be Blu-ray, DVD, digital download, all of that and I really believe we're going to be hearing a lot more from this young man. And, you know, I'm glad to say I got to know him before when because I know when is coming. But don't you forget about us, Chris. And <laughs> no, I'm saying, you know, but I know, like, out of this project, you know, I've, I've been, you know, I've got a few things in development. Um, I can't really say what it is right now, but I got a few things. I know, like, a little TV series I might be doing, um, producing. Huh? Whatever. But I can't really say the details right now, um, but right. It, it's going to be major. It's going to be huge, and I think everyone's going to like it. But, you know, once, once you know, the producers, the other producers, once they're ready to reveal everything, you know, then I'll, I'll reveal it with you and everything and spread it out. But you know, we have a lot of things coming after Wilmington on Fire, you know, some, you know, a couple of TV series, more documentaries, some regular narrative films and all that, so. Excellent. Like I said, you know, keep us in mind because, you know, we have a lot of talent out here, you know, yeah. and, you know, we have musicians in our community. We have some of everybody. And, you know, everybody has to earn their way. But I'm just saying, you know, keep us in mind, and, you know, we're definitely going to promote, you know, your your endeavors and put it out there. And, you know, we already got people wanting to volunteer and help out. So, you know, we just want you to um, – be the best. We wish you much continued success, and we're just looking forward to see to seeing you know the great the greatness that is going to come out of you know Mr. Everett here. So again, we thank you for being a part of the show. We thank you for coming on the show. I thank April for introducing us and for you know letting you know that we talked about Wilmington and letting me know that you were doing a documentary that was you know truly fortunate and it was right on time. So with that, we're going to go ahead and we're going to end the show. But, Mr. Everett, you are welcome back at any time, okay? Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. All right, everybody, check out Wilmington on Fire. You can catch this in the archives. I want to thank everybody that listened live, everybody that's going to catch the archives, the people in the chat room. Um, thank you to the people that are volunteering that want to, you know, help out, you know, Mr. Everett with what's going on here. Um, you can hit me up in the inbox if I didn't give you the information, but look up Wilmington on Fire on Facebook. You can send him a message that way as well. And on that note, I think we're going to go ahead and head on out. But one more time, next weekend, People of Color Beyond Faith will be doing our virtual online conference next Saturday and Sunday. That's the 15th and the 16th of February. You know, check that out on Sunday, February 23rd. That's the National Day of Solidarity for Black Nonbelievers. 
taking place all across the country. For more details, get at Mr. Donald Wright. He can give you more information or you can hit me up and we'll put more out there. Promote it, guys. You know, let everybody know about the Day of Solidarity for Black Nonbelievers. It's important that we find one another, that we have, you know, some type of solidarity with one another, and that we just get offline and sometimes get together and do some things, you know, in real life with one another. So on that note, we thank you. We appreciate you. You guys have a lovely weekend. It's a sunny day in Chicago. Hopefully it will melt that ice underneath my tires and I will be able to move my car. All right, y'all. Take it easy. (laughs) Have a good one. Bye-bye.